talking about enchantment of self and actually again wrapped up with everything that we're saying all of this connects uh, connects every element of what we're talking about connects with every other element but the enchantment of self is integrally related to uh, integrally involves um, the sense of meaningfulness that we have in our life um, enchantment brings meaningful meaningfulness is an element of enchanting the self um, Einstein, actually, in uh, some of his later writings, um, uh, his book called The World as I See It, he wrote, what is the meaning of human life or organic life altogether? So he asks a question, what is the meaning of human life or organic life altogether? And he continues, to answer this question at all implies a religion. So he's aware these are religious questions. And then he says, is there any sense then, you may ask in putting it? In other words... Um, it's a matter of uh, conception, belief, and not of so-called science. Is there any sense, then, you may ask in putting it? And he continues, I answer, the man who regards his life, uh, man who regards his own life and that of his fellow creatures as meaningless is not only unfortunate, but almost disqualified for life. not qualified for a life. The man who regards his own life and that of his fellow creatures as meaning is not only unfortunate, but uh, almost disqualified for life. And Jung, in his view, also emphasized so much the necessity of uh, meaningfulness, of finding or creating meaning, meaningfulness. Uh, he actually saw uh, psychoneurosis, psychological suffering, as ultimately, uh, or the neurotic suffering, as Ultimately, the suffering of a soul which has not discovered its meaning. Whereas meaning, he continues, has an inherent curative power. So, uh, finding meaning in, in, in our lives um, has an inherent curative power. Meaning, he, he writes, meaning makes a great many things endurable. Perhaps everything Meaning, a sense of meaningfulness makes a great many things in our lives, in our existence, endurable, perhaps everything. So the question of meaningfulness is so integral to our well-being, um, to how we live our lives, obviously, but it's also integral to, 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 to a sense of an enchanted self, an enchant, enchanting life. As I think I mentioned in another talk earlier on this retreat, um, when we talk about, or when we open the... Uh, goals and the aims and the directions of our practice to include meaningful, meaningfulness, to include soul-making and uh, enchantment and beauty and the sense of sacredness. When these become um, the goals, then we move, uh, the aim becomes open-ended. The direction of travel, the avenues of, of the path of practice become open-ended. There's an open-endedness, as we said, of enchantment possibilities, an open-endedness of range, but it doesn't stop at a certain point. You can always, somehow, there's a sense of being able to um, move further into all this. There's an unachievability in actualizing um, uh, all of this fully, completely, ever 
fully, finally arriving at an end point of all possibilities for seeing sacredness or beauty or deepening that, of fully living out 100% fully our individuation. We touched on this earlier. There's a freedom that comes with all that, an expansion of freedom that comes with re-enchantment and this um, uh, the, from imaginal work and cosmic oasis. All kinds of freedom open up with that. And also, duties. Images, cosmopoasis, as I said uh, elsewhere uh, earlier on the retreat, they seem to demand of us something, some kind of duty, some kind of embodiment, often, not always, some kind of um, action in life, some uh, a part of grounding, if you like, in relation to images, may well have to do with the duty that comes with an image. And then if we neglect that, um, we're actually ungrounded with the image and the image becomes ineffectual for us. The enchantment, the cosmic voice becomes ineffectual for us because it's not being grounded um, through embodiment um, in both senses, both in, in, in the body sense, in the energy body, but also embodiment in terms of duty, action, implication for life. This is a subtle, you know, again, it's so delicate um, walking, uh, talking about all this stuff and and walking around these areas. Um, But again, Carl Jung wrote, any um, content, meaning any image or experience, again, we talk about images or um, cosmopoetic experiences, any content that emerges from the unconscious into consciousness Okay, that's his system talking, um, involves a spiritual or moral task which, if not accomplished, leads to misunderstandings, complications, suffering and illness. Without the corresponding spiritual work of assimilating and integrating the contents, the experience, etc., the image, um, the experience, however fascinating, however amazing or fascinating this image is, or this cosmopoesis or whatever, this enchantment, however fascinating, loses its value and its meaning. So he was actually, in that instance, he was talking about drug experiences. People can have amazing uh, images or cosmopoetic um, experiences on certain drugs, etc. Um, but if it's not somehow integrated through embodiment, through translation, through the duty that's there, the follow-up work. The duty may involve an acting in the world, and it may not involve an acting in the world. I've talked about this on other talks, I'm not going to repeat it here. So I'm not implying that it always involves an action in the world. But some kind of duty in relation to this image, some kind of honouring of it, needs to be made manifest, and that's part of it. So there's a freedom and a duty. And this is part, the duty is part of the meaningfulness. So, sometimes it's clear what that is, and sometimes it's a lot more vague. Uh, So a few months before he died in a plane crash, um, Doug Hammerskjöld wrote uh, in his diary, he kept a diary um, published posthumously, just a few months before he suddenly died, he wrote, um, I don't know who or what put the question I don't know when it was put. I don't even remember answering. 
but at some moment I did answer yes to someone or something, and from that hour I was certain that existence is meaningful, and that therefore my life in self-surrender had a goal. So there was no event that he remembered, person or image, even that specific. Something was being asked for him of him to which he said yes. And that constellated and, and uh, created meaning for him. And there was a duty in, 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 in that. He was in a dutiful relationship of self-surrender, goal, meaningfulness, etc. Um, wrapped up in that. So in, 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 in a deep, uh, when there's a deep meaningfulness uh, running through our lives, um, or meaningfulness is running through our lives, and, and that brings the enchantment of the self, because the self is given this meaningfulness and trajectory. A part of that is that the meaningfulness feels like, or you could say we entertain again the conception we're entertaining lightly this conception of, of the meaningfuls being asked of us by what is more than human. Can you hear that in, in what uh, Hammarskjöld wrote? We entertain the idea that uh, the duties we have, what we are responsible to, what gives us meaningfulness and therefore enchantment, enchantment and therefore meaningfulness, um, is asked of us by something bigger than we are, bigger than the human. So this is a... We're entertaining this idea at the very same time that we need to see image as image and have equanimity in relationship to these, uh, this sense of duty and embodiment and um, action. It's complex, tricky. But this question, uh, um, I could have gone into it more on this retreat, how um, do images get translated into life or meet life? How do we see life as image? How do we navigate this um, relationship between the imaginal and 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 life? You know, art, complex, takes as I said a lot of skills. I can't remember who wrote it or said it, but there's a Latin phrase: um, "Vocatus aque non vocatus Deus adorit." I mean, called or uncalled, um, the God will come. Called or uncalled, the God will come. So it's a certain view, actually, it's a certain conception that the gods are, the more than human, are present in our life, whether we ask for it or not. That's already a certain view. But, in a way, we need to um, entertain that view and that perception my view, again, I mean conception and perception. Entertaining that um, creates the meaning. So m- meaningfulness and, and this enchantment of the self, or the, the aspect of it, of meaningfulness, does not come without, without entertaining certain views and certain conceptions. Admitting, allowing, holding lightly, whatever. So in all this, again, this... Um, ambivalence, this um, uh, both and, both, we are both creating, I understand this, and um, discovering meaning. I create meaning and I discover my meaning, my meaningfulness, my duty. So some, some deep, mature insight is really holding those two together and acknowledging them. This is difficult. 
especially around meaningfulness. People who do a lot of work on emptiness and sorts, some of them go through a certain phase where, oh, it's all empty, therefore it's all meaningfulness. I see that I can create meaningfulness, but I'm only creating it. There's a kind of nihilism there that's a kind of um, stage that needs to be moved through. I will only um, view the fact that I recognize the recognition that I create meaningfulness, that meaningfulness is created for me, that will only lead to a certain um, puncturing of that meaningfulness and a certain nihilism if lurking in the background of my beliefs and ideation is the idea that there is some um, independent reality, which is that actually things are meaningless, therefore I have to create meaning. Well, therefore, the only meaning that can exist is created, but really, independently, really, of any, any creation of you, is the assumption that really um, they're, they're meaningless. There's a very deep insight here into the emptiness of meaninglessness. So nihilism does not arise. It's, a, it's a, maybe a stage that some people go through, but the fact that I acknowledge, that I recognize, that I'm open to, that um, from a certain perspective I create, as much as I have a sense of discovering meaning and it being asked of me, I create that too. The psyche creates that. Um, it takes a mature insight to really not uh, then actually view that in a kind of nihilistic way. The real truth is meaninglessness. So there's a lot um, tied up in this re-enchantment of the self. And I mentioned um, Chaim Vital, the Kabbalist, and his quote, um, there is no soul uh, which doesn't have endless roots. There is no soul which does not have endless roots. In other words, all souls have, have an infinite amount of roots in this infinite amount of coexisting worlds and levels of existence. So again, it's a metaphysical idea that we are taking more as a poetic idea, which, which, which is tremendously powerful. And can I, in my practice, is what practice is, is converting an idea like that, holding it poetically, letting it have its power by moving it away from purely intellectual to an actual way of looking, what, as, what would it be? How can I? Can I practice seeing and feeling myself seeing and feeling an other as having an infinite amount of roots in an infinite amount of coexisting worlds. And even if it's not infinite, just just other worlds, other roots. In, I have multiple roots in multiple worlds. So when I look at the cell, can I convert that idea, see it, feel it as a poetic idea, and in my art, the art of my living, the art of my practice, the art of my existence, the poetry of my perception, can I convert that poetic idea into something powerful, into a way of looking at self, at other, at world. Wrapped up in that too, uh, because he continues um, in his teaching, in each of these worlds, uh, the, the Torah, the, that's the Hebrew word for the Bible, the Torah is read, the sacred text is read, 
in accordance with that world's subtlety and spirituality. So there's this, again, we've touched on this before, there's this um, teaching, very profound, radical teaching, um, that there are infinite interpretations of the sacred text. But more than that, um, this word text can even be used more, more, more widely of, of uh, any text, but also of nature, nature as so-called text. Infinite interpretations of nature, of self, of other, of existence, of cosmos. All, all these ideas are wrapped up together. All these ideas are, um, if you like, vital, vitalizing in the re-enchantment of self. And the possibilities of re-enchantment of self. And all these ideas actually make possible uh, something, I think I mentioned this, uh, these words, again Latin words, amor fati, the love of one's fate, the love of one's destiny. I think it again was a phrase uh, Nietzsche used, I can't remember. Um, but all these ideas make that possible. So the re-enchantment of self means um, can all these ideas can make possible the love of oneself, the love of one's fate, the, because it, it becomes something sacred. My life, the events of my life, the tragedies of my life, my suffering, my struggles, my perceptions my openings, my vision, my work, my creativity, my difficulties, all the amor fati, and not just bearing it, not, and this isn't a teaching except what is, included in all this, at least in, in how I would like to say it, present it, is, you know, this understanding there is no what is. What is is a, is a kind of modern spiritual myth, in, in the worst sense of the word. Is empty. What is is empty. What what is available to us are empty ways of looking. This flexibility of interpretation. So loving my fate actually becomes again an art. Is open uh, to multiple perspectives. What what is can be seen from so many different ways and is coloured and shaped and fabricated by so much that there is no independent what is. So we're not talking about accepting what is, we're talking about loving what is. Loving our fate, loving our life, loving the self. Amor fati. So myself is not different to what befalls the self, including, including the sufferings, including the challenges, including the difficulties, including the pain, including my life and death and whenever they come. This knowledge that is empty, love of, of that uh, love of it knowing that it's empty knowing that it's art in how I see it and again um, uh, recognizing that uh, uh, within that we are we're sensitive to the, the dimensions of, of myself of my existence, of my faith and the divinity of all that so yes um, it's given and yes, we create all of it through our perspectives, through the art of, of perception. So this loving it, again, to harp on a, a distinction that we're emphasizing on this retreat, it's not, I love it and it's all perfect because all is one. All is equally the same uh, 
substance of God or um, uh, oneness of awareness or love or whatever it is. So that's included as a level within this understanding that I'm talking about when I, when I use the phrase Amor Fati. It's included, but uh, we want to add within that the, uh, the inclusion of, as I said, the personal, the particular as necessary. All of it is relevant for my soul, the persona, for my personhood, and also necessary for God, for the divine. Nietzsche had this question uh, of eternal recurrence. So if you had to live every moment of your life again, over and over and over, your whole life in all its details, without anything changing, over and over for all eternity. So that means all all the periods, all the moments of pain, of suffering, of struggle, confusion, even stagnation, and the... Uh, durations of all, all, all those periods and the timings, the order in which they come from, not changing any of that. The joys as well, not just the pains, but all of it, all of it. And not smoothing the experience and the life out to being nice. How would you feel about that? It's only in this amorfati that you can recognize the sacredness of it that would make such an idea, uh, when he was trying to get at what would make such an idea tolerable. And the test of your art of life is, is your response to that question. So again, so much about what we're talking about in this re-enchantment of self, but re-enchantment of Existence and cosmos is 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 creative is is art. We're, t- we're really emphasizing that. I've said so many times. <clears throat> In um, many um, traditions from ancient times unto the present, uh, there's this idea of the possibility of becoming divine. The human being has the possibility to become divine. Acknowledge, acknowledge that that's rare, that kind of development, but we can, if you like, become God or a God or divine. So you get this in Plato and Plotinus and then Upanishads and um, uh, in Buddhist Tantra in, in Jung as well, you know, many, many, many others as well. In Orthodox Christianity, it's called theosis, this teaching. Um, and um, Let me read you a little something from um, a theologian called Jonathan Jacobs uh, and writing about um, this possibility in in Eastern Orthodox teachings. Um, This theosis, according to Eastern Church, the theosis transforms the entire human person, including her sense-perceptual capacities. It's very much congruent with what I've been talking about. It's like the transformation is in the perception as well. Um, Hence the the deified, the ones made divine, are those who see things as they truly are. Okay, there's some some differences there, but let's let's elaborate this a little bit from following what he says. Um, So before this uh, becoming divine, we don't see things... um, 
our our sense faculties don't reveal things to us as as they truly are. He writes, uh, and that's so called part of our fallen human nature in in the Christian tradition. Um, but and, and he makes a analogy there with um, actually with autism. So this is his analogy. It's like it's not that before that we are uh, our perceptions are completely untrustworthy. Um, he says our current epistemic situation, our current situation of knowing through perception is not unlike that of an autistic person. Autistic persons can perceive much in the world and indeed often have a more finely tuned ability to perceive some things. But autistic persons do not have the sorts of abilities others have when it comes to perceiving persons. They may be able to see facial expressions, for example, and describe them accurately in detail, but they cannot see them for what they truly are. Um, expansions, expressions of emotion, say. Similarly, our, quote, fallen sense capacities need uh, not be unreliable in general in what they deliver for them to be defective. So clearly, uh, there's some acknowledgement that it's not like we, we don't perceive anything true. It may be that we can see things in the world accurately, we just cannot see them for what they truly are. Um, so in this case, we could see we cannot see, for instance, the theophanies, selves and things and events as faces of God. We, we are, uh, like an autistic person, unable to see um, certain aspects of, of, of a person or a thing. Um, we are unable to see them as theophanies or less able. Or again, in Buddhism, there's, a, there's the teaching of um, uh, authentic seeing, what's called authentic seeing. It's one definition of what is ultimate uh, wisdom in, in, in some Buddhist teachings. Authentic seeing is the way a Buddha sees experiences as divine and beings as deities, as Buddhas. And that's actually authentic seeing. Anything less than that is, is, not, is inauthentic seeing. Um, actually, someone else writing about um, the Greek, uh, the Christian, uh, the Orthodox Christian tradition, Eastern tradition, uh, Paniotis Nelas, um, talks about this idea made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. And we say, really, what that means is that we have um, the possibility to tend towards the archetypal image related to what I said before about the angel out ahead, etc. And we have the possibility of that tendency and that the aim of serving as the effective instruments of the Christ. Um, so this is a gift given to us by, by the divine, but also a gift of our being, a gift of ourselves, but also, if you like, um, a destiny or at least a goal or at least a potential of ourselves, of our being. He talks about a pledge. I'm not sure what he means. We pledge ourselves to that, or the divine God makes a pledge to us through making us in 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 the divine image. But the pledge becomes a marriage, marriage of the human to the divine. And he writes, in the archetype. It's in the archetype that one finds one finds one's true ontological meaning. Okay, and we're back to the, 
the image and the archetype um, giving us the direction, pulling us, giving us the duty and the sense of the meaning. And, and he's, what he's saying is this is the, the meaning of our being, the ontological meaning. It's through the archetype, through the image. Now for most of us entrenched or, or saturated with modernism, these are um, strange ideas. Even if they're beautiful, we can almost hear them as quite dangerous. And, you know, if you know certain words about inflation and, uh, you know, ungroundedness and uh, there's the possibility of lack of discernment and all this. But as I said, skills, capacities, wisdoms, cultivations need to come in to all these ideas about becoming divine, manifesting the divine, that make these ideas um, not so dangerous. And through practice we actually realize, we make real the beauty um, beauty of these ideas. So there's this idea uh, through many strands of, of, of history, historical strands of becoming God, becoming divine. And then there's also the strand I've mentioned uh, several times about both becoming God, but in that and, and through our activities, creating God as well, creating the divine. So you get this in different versions. And um, we talked about Walter Wink talking about the ascension and the resurrection, shaping, creating, influencing, changing God. Um, you see it in Hegel's philosophy as, as well, that the, the human being and the consciousness of the human being and the evolution of that through time um, creates uh, at least a level of God, let's say. Um, postmodern understandings, more, 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 more postmodern understandings, um, still very rare within postmodernist theories as a whole for this even to talk about the divine. But anyway... In less than a dismiss, in more than a dismissive manner. Um, but this idea that we both become and create, and as I mentioned, this is a, this is quite a common idea in in a lot of Kabbalistic Jewish Kabbalistic strands of teaching. So that our prayer and our voicing in prayer and the breath that comes through us and our intentionality in prayer, as much as our psycho spiritual work, as much as our um, actions in life, in embodiment, all of this um, shapes and creates and influences and maintains um, God, the divine, the divine archetype. So yes, our actions in the world and our mental states and our work um, draw down what's called the divine influx. We draw that down into the world. We create it in the world, but also in the so-called supernal realms, in the higher realms, all of this um, uh, so maintains, shapes, influence, creates the divine, or um, brings aspects of the divine together in, in erotic union. So it, it affects uh, the intra-divine nature. These are radical ideas that most people who think about religion um, and that kind of thing would, would never um, uh, think would exist in that. The whole idea in the Jewish tradition of mitzvot, of commandments, you know, have, uh, as many commandments as Buddhist monks do, actually more than Buddhist monks do, but both of those traditions have so many um, things, uh, rules to follow, commandments to, uh, to um, fulfill. 
ways of acting, ways of not acting, etc. But there's ways of seeing that, that, they, that, that those very actions, those very seeming constrictions on one's behavior, do this, don't do that, do this little thing, this thing, I don't even understand the reason for. And there's ways of seeing that, that enchant existence. Seeing those little actions, the blessing involved. And, and with that, the, um, those, those uh, actions become the action of the divine intelligence. Again, this might just be in our kindness, in our acts of compassion, in our serving, in our creativity, or maybe more prescribed in certain, as I said, monastic orders or, or um, in sort of laws of Judaism and Islam and all that. But they become the actions of the divine intelligence through the human, because the divine intelligence is innate there in the human. There's that idea, entertaining that idea. So through our actions we express the divine, we manifest the divine, and we create and shape the divine. Uh, what's called in Jewish tradition the Shekhinah, the feminine um, manifestation on earth of the divine, the Shekhinah. And it's that that's through our actions, through our prayer, through our cosmopoesis, through our images, through our psycho-spiritual work, all of that, um, that is brought in to erotic union with uh, other aspects of the divine. And there's this idea in, in Hebrew, it's called Zorah Gavar, I think, um, the need on high, in other words, God's need or rather a certain level of God, a certain level of God is beyond all this, is completely unaffected, transcendent, the unfabricated, beyond anything that we can do or, or conceive, uh, beyond anything that um, what we do affects, but also beyond anything we conceive. And that level of God is unaffected, the ain'ts of, the infinite. But there are other, if you like, levels of God or aspects of God that, that have a need, a necessity, as I said, a necessity for yourself, for your personhood, for the particularities of your personhood. So become God, but also become and create God. So this is quite a sophisticated notion to be able to entertain that and hold that and have that as as one of the ideas that one entertains, one of the conceptual frameworks and the, the richness that that can bring, the possibilities um, and quite a sophisticated um, concept to hold, to entertain, to hold lightly, to look through, to act through, to live through. So, yeah, Nietzsche said God is dead, but it's so um, narrowly understood or what, what he meant by that, God is dead. So certainly he was referring to a certain popular dominant view in Western Europe at that time, at the end of the um, 18th century, 19th century, uh, of what God is, sort of based on sort of popular Christian view, and he's saying that view is dead. But really, what what he meant more fully was God as any truth, any supposedly independent, uh, inherently existing thing. Very radical and uh, radical thinker, and and that idea, this idea. Or this notion or this belief that we have of independent truth, he said, that's dead. When he said God is dead, that's what he meant was dead. 
of which a certain popular, uh, a certain Christian popular or popularized version of Christianity, of uh, Christianity's version of God, uh, is is just one instance. He was pointing to something much more radical, much more challenging for people to even understand, and much more far-reaching in its consequences. But is there a way, just as he said with, with the concept of soul, there may well be um, the concept of divinity. So don't throw that out. Expand what it means. Acknowledge the art there, the cr- that we create and discover both. So again, as we said so much right from the beginning of the retreat, all this that we're talking about in, in the enchantment, the re-enchantment of self, aspects of self, elements of self, dimensions and and of, of the whole of existence and the cosmos, all of it is allowed by um, the, the flexibility or the elasticity of our of our concepts, of our ideas. Or to move between different concepts or stretch concepts, or that the conceptual frame we start with in the beginning is ample enough to include um, this, this, these ideas of creating God, becoming God, of uh, all, all this is ample enough, and of the, 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 the ways that we can see the self right to, to begin with. So our, our our views and our ways of looking and our practice and our re-enchantment can kind of grow into a much bigger sp- it has a much bigger space to grow into, right from the beginning. So again, I mentioned this in some other talk. I can't remember. Um, you get this idea of, of uh, levels of soul. So if we just talk about the the concept of, of of self or soul, you get this framework quite sophisticated and ample amply um, uh, uh, amp- amply spaced you know having having a, a wide range of idea in Plotinus and Neoplatonism uh, apparently in the Upanishads well, I'm not I'm not uh, sufficiently versed in them to, to know um, and also in, in Buddhist Vajrayana these ideas of levels of dimensions of being and also of worlds um, so but the, the there's, there's already there quite a lot of space for different views and flexibility of views of what the self is, all of which allows re-enchantment. So conceptual frameworks that allow um, all this to happen in terms of the re-enchantment of the self, but these are not just intellectual. Conceptual framework needs to be translated to ways of looking, to seeing the aggregates as not just anatta, not just self, but as divine, as Buddha nature. Seeing self um, as as Buddha, seeing others as Buddha as deity, and and make that an actual practical vision, sense, perception, way of looking <clears throat> that we can practice and develop and move in and out of, as I said. And when we talk in that term, then we're talking about dimensions and levels of experience, not just conceptual levels of defining soul or whatever. Sometimes when you read this stuff, uh, Plotinus and all that stuff, it, it seems so um, intellectually elaborate, etc. When you actually realize he's talking, I, w- I would say, and for us it's absolutely necessary, we're talking about dimensions of experience. Yes, a conceptual framework needs to be translated to practice, to experience, levels and dimensions of experience, as I said. So we see that, and I mentioned before, you know, one aspect is at a certain level, 
um, then uh, timelessness, for example, is something that um, is included both in the <coughs> sense of self and in the sense of, of other things. And other levels of, of uh, uh, conception and practice and view and sense of self, um, it's more, it doesn't have that timeless and timelessness in it. It's more locked into time. And that has its validity as well. But experientially, we experience certain levels where timelessness, um, as an aspect of, of those dimensions, becomes just, um, it, we, can't, we can't not see it. It's just it's integral to that perception. So whether it's the awareness or the consciousness, um, that's regarded as Buddha nature that's seen as timeless, the consciousness of this perception, or maybe I'm looking at a field and the sun or the trees or whatever, and I get a sense, a felt sense, this knowing of that is timeless, this perception is timeless, this moment is eternal. These are um, not just conceptions of self, they're perceptions, senses, available to us. And actually, even frequently available with practice. So we really get the sense of moving between um, uh, levels of, of perception of self and the aspects of self, of dimensions of being, and also across a, 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 a wide range, as we, as we talked about earlier. But we need, in relation to the self, again, we need... Uh, conceptions or conceptual framework that um, uh, that will allow this um, mutual opening, expansion, deepening and enriching of eros, of psyche and of logos. The very conceptual framework itself needs to be able to expand. And through this, uh, which I've talked about in other talks, through that movement, that soul-making movement, even the smallest act in our life the smallest, most seemingly insignificant act has a, has a sense of infinite ramifications, infinite resonances, infinite depths to it. It touches on the infinite. It moves into the infinite and towards the infinite. To quote a uh, Kabbalist, it becomes woven into the soul's garment of splendor. When I am able to view um, the smallest act of my life, the smallest instance of my self-manifestation, self-expression, self-acting, in certain ways that re-enchant, that allow this soul-making, this <coughs> a scene through a conception that allows this eros-psyche-logos mutual fertilization, then even that small act is woven into the soul's garment of splendor lovely language. So, we need conceptions, again, I've said this so many times, and we need conceptions that will allow soul-making <coughs> and will um, allow an infinite potential for that soul-making because it is open-ended. The pothos in the eros will continue to want more, deeper, fuller, wider connection the psyche needs the image of myself, of this other, of this thing that I love, of this object, of the cosmos, needs to keep expanding. There's infinite potential, infinite space there for all that to expand. And with that, the, the logos, the conceptual framework as well. 
And it's not that that in infinite sort of expansion and deepening, etc., happens without difficulty. We stagger, we stutter, we stall at times. But that's all part of it, because the suffering also is enchanted. Not that this is all smooth and gleeful all the time. But the conceptual framework that needs to allow the soul making, the infinite potential of that <coughs> dynamic of soul making, it needs to allow meaningfulness, it needs to allow enchantment for the self, for others, for things, for cosmos. All of this is necessary for all of that, for the re-enchantment of all of that. For the ongoing and open-ended discovery, creation discovery of senses of beauty and uh, senses of sacredness in all of it, in all of existence, self, other, things, cosmos. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.